This is Katie from Idaho, and I don't even know what the crap I doubt it with Dalamore is. The following broadcast may contain free thinking and open-minded discussion, ideas, skepticism, and adult subject matter. Topics will be discussed using adult language, sometimes gratuitously. Get ready to move the conversation forward. This ain't your granddad's news and comment show. This is I Doubt It with Dalamore. Get ready. Here it comes. Episode 125 of I Doubt It with Dollamore. I am your host, Jesse Dollamore, and sitting across from me, relaxed and tranquil, ready to go and stress-free, my lovely grad student co-host, Brittany Page. I'm relaxed and... Did you say tranquil? I don't know. Okay. Uh, <laughs> because it's so late. It is well. Here's the deal, and I, I we do, won't talk about how late it is, I, but it is no, listen, quite late. I wasn't even going to mention it. I wasn't going to bring it up because you don't like to talk about how the sausage is made. I, you know what? But I I can the, talk about that. I just don't like that to be said. <laughs> That's there's the difference. You know where this where the term comes from, right? Maybe it's how the hot dogs are made because it's it's lips and b- assholes and snouts and feet in the hot dogs. And people don't like to know what's in their hot dogs. And as with that, people don't like to know what's in their podcasts or how it's made. Okay. I, I'm really stretching there, yeah. but that's kind of what I mean by that. So yeah. we normally what we do when we do the show is we do it obviously the day before, sometime during the day. Well, we're coming at you from the actual day you're going to listen to the show. Right now it is May 21st, 2015. 12.07 a.m. <laughs> Yay. It is the middle of the goddamn night. And for those of you on the East Coast of the United States, it's really the middle of the night. It's three in the morning. So I guess I'm a night owl. Well, I always am a night owl. You, on the other hand, are, uh, well, you're really not even a morning person. You're not a night person. You're not, <laughs> you're just kind of lame all the time. Uh, that's not true. <laughs> it's just that I like to sleep as much as possible. So would 4 p.m. be optimum Brittany Page time? Hmm, I could go to sleep at 4 p.m. <laughs> no, well, of course, I think we've covered voluminously on this show that you could sleep at any time. Mm-hmm. You could sleep on a bed of nails inside of a stinky dumpster like a baby. Yeah, I mean, that might be stretching the nails part. But you don't think you could fall asleep? Um, on nails? I, I don't know. That's a little rough. Apparently, at this late hour, Brittany takes everything literal. So, be warned, audience, <laughs> be warned. Well, I I am not feeling so hot because... In your tum. Yeah, earlier, I ate a bowl of delicious dirty rice. Okay. Um, But I I chopped up a habanero pepper mm-hmm. and included it in the one single bowl of food that I ate. Okay, that sounds like a tum time. Yeah, you, Brittany, would describe it as a tum time, yeah. which usually precedes violent explosive diarrhea. Okay. <laughs> this is just bad. This we, is bad. We need to do shows late more often. Okay. So here's the deal is I have a... A condition <laughs> where I am drawn to very, very spicy you food. You are, yes. And I don't mean it to be a braggart kind of a thing where oh, I can eat whatever hot. I really enjoy it. It's a, yeah. it, it, it's enjoyable to me. Like even with your breakfast, like if you're going to have eggs, you will slice up even just habaneros or jalapenos, something to add spice just to a regular breakfast meal. Yeah, everything else is bland. After you start eating peppers. Apparently. Well, it's well, it's true. And he, here's the deal. I have in my past, because I've always been known as a guy who could eat very, very spicy. It's so spicy. Like when we go get wings at a restaurant, it used to be this, where I'd say, make them as hot as you can make them. Make them so hot that you don't think anyone will eat them. And if you, by some chance... Under the sun, we're able to make them where I'm not able to eat them. Then kudos to you. I won't be able to eat them, but I'll still pay you. That's that's kind of the hot that I that I'm looking for. Yeah, it's never been able to be achieved. 
However, in my more advanced age, I'm getting a little older, my stomach is rebelling. It's starting to not agree with Ghost Peppers and Carolina Reaper. Uh-oh. But even now it's starting to even be a little angry about habaneros. Oh, so it's you're talking about angry in a fiery tum-time way. Well... <laughs> Fiery tum. Well, it's a little bit of a one one of those deals where you're like, huh, something's uh, <laughs> something's uh, something's going on <laughs> in my in my stomach. Yeah. So it's kind of the stomach thing, but then also, obviously, later on, after the stomach upset, the imminent fiery tum. Yeah. Then you know it's it's projectile. Projectile <laughs> All right, no, don't butthole get, time. Don't get specific. Lava projectile no, butthole time. This is why we the emergency tum time is how it should be. I don't use that vernacular. It is emergency tum time. It is more appropriate and tolerable, I think, for people to hear. Listen, I would no. be remiss <laughs> if I was not honest with my audience. And I didn't let them know that sometimes I poop my pants. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not go that far. I don't poop my pants. Well, sometimes I poop my pants, but yeah, I don't. May I really have happened don't. a couple yeah, of times. It's happened a couple times. <laughs> <laughs> but in the onset of eating, listen, there's been times in my life where, because I am the freak show eater of spicy things, our international listeners probably won't know what the fuck I'm talking about. But there is a there's a hot sauce called Frank's Red Hot. I wonder if it is international. It's not. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just assuming maybe not, but. Frank's Red Hot, it's not even crazy. I Well, to me, it's not hot. And we were in a bar one time, and I'm with this big group of guys, and someone was, we were talking about spicy things, and I'm like, yeah, I don't even think that's really hot. And so someone knew the owner of the bar, and they had like industrial-sized vats, like buckets of Frank's Red Hot, because they made wings there. Like the cans, cans of it? No, or... I mean like probably five-gallon buckets oh, of it. Oh, Wow. So somebody talked to one of the bartenders and they brought out a pint glass filled Ugh. with Frank's Red Hot. With an ice cube in it? Like no, a- no, just Frank's Red Hot. <laughs> Room temperature Frank's Red Hot. Yikes. I've never seen a pint glass of it. So the the deal was that I said, okay, I, I will do this, but I'm not just going to down chug a pint of Frank's Red Hot. Yeah, you need money or something, right? Ex- I wanted incentive and I wanted money. So I said, okay. Everybody here, $5? Yeah, everybody was in. It was awesome. I'm like, yeah, that's about 100 bucks. I don't know if it was full, full 100 but there was right. a lot of us there. Nice. So I, I belly up to the table, mm-hmm. grabbed the Franks, uh, back, tipped it back, chugged it down. It was actually surprisingly not, there was no gag effect because it's a lot of vinegary, you know, yeah. hot saucy bullshit. So it's kind of tasty is what you're saying. It wasn't... Un, uh, uh, displeasing to me, I guess. Okay. I finish, and my reward, five single dollars. Just five dollars total. Yeah. Apparently, there was a miscommunication. That's the way I'm going to look at it from the nice guy perspective. I think they were fucking me on the deal. But the way I understood it was everybody at the table was going to pony up five dollars. Right. Individually. For having witnessed the feat of drinking a pint of red, so- red, red, uh, red hot, Frank's, and uh, that's not what happened. I guess they all collectively kicked in ten cents and gave me my five dollars because it was a single five dollar bill. You got screwed yeah, on that deal. What a bunch of dicks! And but here's the deal. I guess this just goes to show. Uh, it goes to the point that I'm I'm okay with hot stuff because it didn't. I was no worse for the wear. I no tum time. D- <laughs> no tum time. Not even heartburn, which I have a uh, a tendency to suffer from. So it was basically like drinking a glass of milk is what you're saying. <laughs> Probably fewer calories than a glass of milk. Yes. Yeah. Milk. So it is not milk. There is no E in the fluid that comes from the tit of a cow. It is milk. Milk. It's milk. Okay. I guess we'll agree to disagree <laughs> on that. Let's move on with the show. How about that? I guess we could agree on that to get this show rolling. Well, I certainly don't want to talk about how I can't pronounce things correctly for the rest of the show. That's right. 657-464-7609. That is our number for the 125th time. 
If you have something to say, if you have something to sound off on, if you disagree or agree or just generally want to laud praises upon the lovely Brittany Page and shit on me, that is the number. You can also send us a voice memo from your smartphone to idoubtit at dollamore.com. Speaking of the voicemail line, last episode we talked about plus minus grading, the bane of Brittany Page's existence at this moment. Although grades are rolling in and she's uh, she's doing well. She's, she's not displeased in that area. We had a caller call in about that and also about trigger warnings, which is another topic we covered. And here it is. Hey, guys. This has been... I just wanted to comment on a couple of things you guys talked about in the most recent podcast. Uh, first of all, I just want to let Brittany know that uh, plus minus grading is a bitch. And it's also a pretty common thing. I dealt with it in my undergrad program, as well as um, a lot of my friends who are in different undergrad programs at different universities have dealt with it for a while. So it's pretty common, and, yeah, I think it does suck, too. Um, second off, I wanted to comment on the trigger warning discussion. I'm in total agreement with you guys. Um, I definitely think that that professor could have handled it differently. Um, and I think that for persons who have traumas in their life and PTSD, very severe situations where there are things that are going to cause them a lot of discomfort and unease and um, can actually trigger different symptoms, they definitely need the help that they deserve. And um, I definitely think he kind of missed missed an opportunity to possibly help a student who needed it. Um, But on the other hand, I think that there has been a very very large proliferation of the use of trigger warnings in social media, um, social media sites and blogs and things like that. Um, and, and a lot of times I think that they've been used in um, unfairly and in unwarranted situations. Um, and I think it has kind of watered down what a trigger warning actually is and the meaning of a trigger warning and when people hear it now, they kind of just roll their eyes and go, oh, trigger warning. Uh, sounds like the feminists are talking. When in reality, they're actually useful for people who have things like PTSD. So I definitely think that there um, needs to be a balance of when they're used. And maybe we should start thinking about when we're using them and uh, where people are using them too much and look into that. Thanks, guys. I appreciate the call very much. Uh, we we always enjoy hearing from our listeners. Um, I agree. I, I think the the wisest thing that he said was that it's become watered down. That there there might be a need for trigger warnings on things. However, it's become watered down with the overuse, and I think that's the danger. And that's with everything. The the wild crazy radical liberal left they have a a good thought about something and it's well intended and then they just fucking run amuck with it and ruin it because you know well people in relationships there should be a trigger warning on their facebook posts because they're really they're not looking at the plight of the single people i mean where do we stop with it right and i think the the general point still remains that if you are someone who is experiencing symptoms because you're reading literature in your class in college that maybe your professor isn't the best person isn't the most well-equipped person to ask for help and you should be seeking out some sort of help for your PTSD or for the trauma that is impacting you in such a way that you can't even read a poem in your class it's trigger warnings are a band-aid on uh, a, the, a slashed wound on your juggler vein. You're bleeding out and you want a little Band-Aid for, your, for your, your gory wound that's going to kill you. Right, and we should all be compassionate for those people that, that have traumas and that are experiencing this. It's just that it would be better for them, I think, if they were to go and get help and really find a, a remedy for how they're feeling. Sure. Which I don't think a trigger warning is a remedy. Absolutely so. not. Okay, awesome. Thanks, caller. We really appreciate it. Let's do a little follow-up. What do you say, Brittany Page? That sounds great. No, no, we don't answer that. Mm. Bill Cosby, back in the news. Apparently, he sat down with 
uh, Good Morning America and what's her name? I don't listen. I don't watch a lot of network news. I watch CNN primarily, a little bit of Fox once in a while, but I don't do a lot of morning shows. Lindsay Davis. And this is an interesting way to spell Lindsay. L-I-N-S-E-Y. I've seen that. Lindsay, not Lindsay. Right. Yeah. So Lindsay Davis sat down with Bill Cosby and a, a, a few other people. I think there were three other people on the panel talking about the Black Belt Youth Education Program or something like that. That's not really what we're going to talk about here. She asked him about what he would say to young people when they approach him about the allegations against him. And he gave, finally he gives an answer, finally, and it is a doozy. If a a young person comes up to you and says, you know, my mom says you've done some bad things, Um, you know, how will you answer them if they are pressing you? Are you guilty? Did you do it? Are the allegations true? I am prepared to tell this young person uh, the, the truth about life. I'm not sure that they will come like that. I think that uh, many of them say, well, you're a hypocrite. You say one thing, you say the other. My point is, okay, listen to me carefully. I'm telling you where the road is out. I'm telling you where as you're driving, you're going to go into, into water and it looks like it might only be three inches deep. But you and your car are going to go down. Now, you want to go here or you want to be concerned about who's giving you the message? <laughs> um, what? Oh, my God. That is awesome. What was he even talking it is, about? It's good. If a, a young person comes up to you and says, you know, my mom says you've done some bad things, um, you know, how will you answer them if they are pressing you? Are you guilty? Did you do it? Are the allegations true? Well, well you got a car battery and a glass of water and the refrigerator's right there. The GPS unit's not going to give you a Bluetooth speaker. <laughs> what, the f- what is he talking about? Yeah. It makes no sense. I have no idea. There what? was something in there about the messenger. You got to maybe... I, really? Is he losing his fucking mind? I think maybe they're telling him, listen, you're going to be asked about this going forward. <laughs> and you can't just say, no, no, we don't talk about that. Like, No, event- no, we don't answer that. Yeah, eventually you're going to have to say something. Maybe maybe they've told him this and now he, he's thinking, okay, well, I need to come up with something. And this was the best he could do. Given the answer he gave, I think that he is under the consultation of Sarah Palin, because that was some of the greatest word salad <laughs> I've ever fucking heard. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm at a loss for words at the. Listen, we talk all the time on the show about politicians and their artfulness of evading questions. If you ask Hillary Clinton about this emails on her server, she will say, I am proud of the work that we have done at the Clinton Global Initiative and blah, blah, blah. And she'll go on about something else completely unrelated to the direct question you gave her. And that's not just her. That's all politicians. But this is, it's a new, it's a new area and flavor of crazy because he answer, gives a complete answer that is lengthy and says fucking nothing. It's not even an answer to another question. I mean, if the question was, give me an answer of jumbled words that make no sense when strung together, then ding, 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 ding of winner. Yeah. Just fucking bizarre. So there's that. (laughs) Another piece of follow up before we move on. A few episodes ago, several episodes ago, we talked about a study that involved the changing of voters' minds on the issue of gay marriage. And apparently, it was completely riddled with bullshit. 
So it was the study that we talked about where they found that a 20-minute one-on-one conversation with a gay political canvasser could steer votes in favor of same-sex marriage. Which was very promising because up to this point, it has been kind of conventional wisdom that people are just entrenched in their views and no amount of talking to them is going to change them because they, they're, they're seated and rooted in their beliefs. And this was groundbreaking because they asserted that canvassers would go around and poll uh, neighborhoods, go through neighborhoods and have conversations with voters at their doors, and they would send gay individuals to have conversations to kind of spark empathy in these voters. That, hey, well, I'm I'm a gay American and I'm a construction worker or whatever I am, and it's important to me to be able to marry the person that I love because I'm a human being, to put a face on gay marriage. And their results showed that it was very effective. Merely a 20-minute conversation could completely turn around an individual. And not only that, that the opinions... The change in opinion lasted at least a year and influenced other people in the voters' household. Yeah. And this was published last December in Science, but stop what you're doing listening to us talk about it because... Bullshit. It's been retracted. Yeah. Due to fraud. So Donald Green, the senior author on the study, retracted it on Tuesday, shortly after learning that his co-author, UCLA graduate student Michael LaCour, had faked the results. Science posted an official editorial expression of concern, and the senior author of the study released a statement saying, I am deeply embarrassed by this turn of events and apologize to the editors, reviewers, and readers of science. Green is a professor of political science at Columbia University. The problems came to light after three other researchers tried and failed to replicate the study. That was my next question. How did we come to this to this finding? And that's it, that other people, and that's the beauty of science and peer review in that process, is other people try to replicate your results. And so I guess what happened is they tried, they couldn't, they became concerned, and what'd they do? They contacted the authors on the original study and let them know, listen, this is what we're doing. We're unable to find results similar to what you found. Huh. Can we take a look at maybe what you gathered? Um, maybe talk to some people that were in your study. And they said that the file was deleted. Their data file was deleted. They only had it on one one computer, huh? And <laughs> that they couldn't come up with any of the people that were in the study. So, so giant red flags. Right. So... Not good. And also a representative from Qualtrics, the online survey software program that was used to collect the data, also said there was no evidence of the deletion of Hmm. the data file. Hmm. So it wasn't just that, well, that's kind of weird. It's also that, well, there's no evidence that you deleted it. So what's going on here? And then eventually that... Everything came out. Right. That racer just admitted, yeah, I... Falsified data. Right. So the beauty of this is, and we're not necessarily talking about this particular result and and that it's because this would be great if this were if the research was true, but this is the beauty of science in general, of research in general. That there is a mechanism in place for bullshit to be vetted, for and the Andrew Wakefields of the world to be outed as charlatans. And it, it rang true here. And I'm not saying that the the original author of this study is a charlatan or a liar because there's only, up to this point, we only know of one person, a grad assistant, who is complicit or whoever he is. He's not the, the guy with the letters after his name, the way I understand it. So... I think the process rang true and it's, uh, you know, it's another win, even though it's a black mark, it's another win for science because they're not sticking to their guns. The results are being retracted. So I think that's a good thing. It was the senior author who didn't know. And then the person who falsified the data was a graduate student. So I don't, I don't know what his, I don't know if he's graduated. I don't know his situation, but well, he's, He's probably going to have a hard time looking for a job in his field after this. Goddamn. Yeah, not good. Not good. 
Dollamocracy 2016, facing down pessimistic politics with realistic optimism. Well, he's gone and done it. Jeb Bush is officially not a viable candidate in the eyes of your humble host, Jesse Dollamore. Uh-oh. He has failed the litmus test that I've talked about so many times since the 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 start of our now legendary Dollamocracy segment. <laughs> um, he sat down with, of all networks, CBN, Christian Broadcast Network, home... Home of Pat Robertson. Right in the belly of the beast. Sat down in the belly of the beast. That's very apt. And he gave an interview with one of their lackeys who apparently, well, clearly isn't an objective journalist. And this was the exchange that took place. It's not just that people of faith can have their views. It's Mm -hmm. that they they need the space to act on their conscience. That is what faith is about. The best of our faith, anybody of faith, Christian, Jewish, all mm-hmm. faiths, is when people act on their core beliefs in a way to help others or to protect the vulnerable or to do whatever they think is right based on, on, um, on their faith. And now mm. that is being attacked. You have Hillary Clinton saying that people of faith kind of need to get over it as it relates to abortion. Right. They need to put aside their, their views. We shouldn't, we shouldn't ever let that happen. People ought to be able to express their, their faith, but also act on it in the public square. Well, that, that is curious because this, this conscience that you talk about, um, you know, this comes up with this, the bakers and the florists who we hear yep. all the time about the Christian bakers and florists who, look, this is not about give, uh, serving a cupcake to someone who's gay. Of course, you have to do that, obviously. This is more about the vendor issue as it relates to do they want to provide a service for same-sex Weddings uh, are are you okay if they don't provide those type of services? Is that is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Right. If, if it's based on a, a religious belief, the right. the best example is the the um, the florist in Washington State oh, yeah. who may lose her business because of this, uh, and has lost a lot because of the costs of all this. She had a regular customer who came in and she would provide flowers to him, and he was going to marry his significant other asked her to participate as a friend in the wedding to help organize it, and she thought about it and said, look, I love you, you're my friend, but I can't participate, it goes against my conscience. Mm -hmm. A big country, a tolerant country, ought to be able to figure out the difference between discriminating against someone because of their sexual orientation and not forcing someone to participate in a wedding that they find um, goes against their, their moral beliefs. We should be able to figure this out. This should not be this complicated, but gosh, it is right now. It was That was a jerk fest. I mean, I'm surprised their pants weren't down around their ankles and each of them reaching over and giving each other a handy. This it, bullsh- complete bullshit and drivel out of both of their dirty, filthy, discriminatory mouths. Well, I think it's very strange. So he said... Um, of course, that should be allowed if it's based on a religious belief. Right. Well, what if it's just based on someone's strong opinion that gays are terrible and they don't want to associate with that kind of flap trap? Right. If religion's not assigned to it, apparently, no, you can't do that. Only You can only discriminate against them if it's based on your religion. Right. So... <laughs> So how does adding religion into the mix suddenly make it different and acceptable? I have no idea. I mean, he's saying, of course, that's acceptable if it's based on your religious belief. But it doesn't matter. Well, he's talking about uh, everyone should should be able to express their faith and not only express their faith, but act on their faith in the public square. Act on their religious beliefs in the public square. You mean like ISIS is doing? I mean, where do you draw the line? That is their public, that is their religious belief. If someone wants to, the Ku Klux Klan, it is their religious belief, whether you believe it or not, to discriminate against blacks. They want a segregated society. That is their deeply held, closely held religious belief. It is. And so is Jeb Bush saying, well, 
Well, not that because I don't necessarily believe that. But it's the but it's their religious yeah, belief. Absolutely. Who is he to say what is valid and what's not when it comes to a religious belief? Sure. And that's the problem. Once you start assigning things that are okay based on a religious belief, well, then you need to say everything's okay based on a religious belief. That's right. Whereas you know people like Jesse D. <laughs> no, nothing is okay discrimination wise under the umbrella of religious belief no That's nothing right. yeah i'm not picking and choosing one thing that is or is not because then you have to make claims on what's valid and what's not what's that based on well your own opinion and mythology which nothing can be verified well here here's the other thing is the host or the interviewer the clearly highly journalistic standard having journalist says no one's saying that they should be able to deny selling a cupcake to a gay guy who walks in to the cu- cupcake shop. Of course, he said. So what the fuck is the difference between selling a cupcake to a gay guy or selling a cupcake, lots of cupcakes, to a gay guy who's getting ready to be married? Is there is there some some test that they give? Here's a cupcake. Listen, I'll sell this to you, but only if you're not going to get married, because that's against my religious belief. If you're just going to be gay, but if you're going to get married, oh, no, I can't sell you this cupcake. Well, apparently they think that by selling the cupcakes for the wedding, they're somehow endorsing the wedding. Here we are giving cupcakes. God is seeing us endorse this wedding. Right. We are going to also go to hell. In the way I understand it, Jeb Bush gave a very... Um, dishonest, disingenuous answer about the the florist or the bakery in Washington State. It wasn't like just a friend asking, "Hey, would you help out with my wedding?" It was a it was a business transaction. It wasn't just like a "Hey, I love you, but I just can't do that because it's against my religion." It, it wasn't one of those deals. So. He's off the table for me. Um, It is unfortunate. It looked like he was putting people in place on his campaign that might ultimately show his his tolerance and lack of discriminatory views. But that is not the case. And just for reference, he has not officially announced. So he, oh, right. he's out of the race <laughs> for you before he's even officially yeah, announced. He's, he's done before he's even a candidate. Well... In the spirit of this, we've recently talked about RIFRA laws, the Religious Freedom Restoration Acts that are all the rage right now and sweeping across the country. Indiana having problems, Georgia having problems, Arkansas having problems. Well, apparently the legislature in the state of Louisiana just put to bed the fact that they were not going to put forward a a Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And Gov- Governor Bobby Jindal, the stalwart fucking brain power of Bobby Jindal, he had some things to say about that. Yes. He says, in Louisiana, the state should not be able to take adverse action against a person for their belief in traditional marriage. Uh, I agree with that. Adverse action should not be able to be taken for your belief against gay marriage or for traditional quote-unquote marriage a belief no no action should be taken we don't support discrimination in louisiana and we do support religious liberty these two values can be upheld at the same time hb 707 which would have blocked the government from penalizing companies because of the owner's stance on same-sex marriage was defeated in the state house's civil law and procedure over fears that it legalized discrimination against lbg people But Governor Bobby Jindal issued an executive order to accomplish its intent. Right. So here's the thing. Bobby Jindal, first of all, is nutter butter Catholic. He is religion guy to the hilt. Yes, he's a strong proponent of a constitutional amendment that would ban same-sex marriage across the country. Oddly enough, a couple years ago, he gave a speech and he said this. Fourth thing we've got to do, we've got to stop being the stupid party. And I'm serious. It's time for a new Republican Party that talks like adults. It's time for us to articulate our plans and our visions for America in real terms. It's no secret we had a number of Republicans that damaged the brand this year with offensive and bizarre comments. I'm here to say we've had enough of that. Brittany, we've had enough of that, says Bobby Jindal. 
Yeah, since when? Apparently, he's had enough, and he's changed his mind since 2013 when he said that. Because this is an iconic thing to say. We've got to stop being the stupid party. Of course, he's talking about the GOP. Right, the Republican Party. Well, when are you going to stop proliferating this kind of bullshit, Bobby Jindal? When are you going to stop? We've got to stop being the stupid party. Being the goddamn stupid party. Because as it stands, there's a lot wrong with the Republican Party. Right, in in talking about things that are unimportant and... Well, listen, it's... They are... They are pissing into the wind on the gay marriage issue. And this leads us to the next topic. Politico published a piece this week about a big, the big problem for the GOP and the issue that the Republican Party faces going forward. That is the death of the members who voted for Mitt Romney. And they did some comparisons which I'm never good at explaining, so I will leave that to my lovely and talented co-host. So Dan McGraw, thank you for having a name that's easy, (laughs) uh, wrote this article for Politico, and he ran some numbers, and he said that the biggest problem for the GOP is that they're dying, right? That are literally dying off because of old age. Right, so he says, by combining presidential election exit polls with mortality rates per age group from the U.S. Census Bureau, I calculated that of the 61 million who voted for Mitt Romney in 2012, about 2.7 million will be dead by the 2016 election. President Barack Obama's voters, of course, will have died too. About 2.3 million of the 66 million who voted for the president won't make it to 2016 either. That leaves a big gap in between, a difference of roughly 453,000 in favor of the Democrats. Here is the methodology that he used using one age group as an example. According to exit polls, he took the number of voters aged 60 to 64 years old that supported Romney in 2012. Then he found the mortality rate for that age group, which was about 1,047.3 deaths per 100,000 people which means that that 57,475 of those voters died by the end of 2013. He multiplied that number by four and then gets sure, the number. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you get it. So these are just estimates, right? Mm-hmm. So they're not, he's not. Yeah, it's not, he's not prognosticating the death of, you know, three and a half, four million people. He's just saying that the likelihood is, the, stati- the statistical chances are that this will be the outcome. Right. He, here's Here's the other side of the coin is that not being able to rely on the old, stodgy, you know, traditionally set-in-their-ways population. Baby boomers. You can't rely on them because of their advanced age and dying off in droves. (laughs) You're going to have to rely on the younger voters. And, And this is a message, again, to the GOP. If you are listening and you have any power within the Republican structure... Listen to the sound of my voice or you will die a political death. 58% of millennials, Republicans, not just millennials, millennial Republicans, 58% believe that gay marriage should be passed. More studies have come out just recently and I'm mixing topics here. But for the first time, Gallup just did a poll. The majority of Americans say that gays are born gay. The tide is turning. And if you are going to push against gay marriage, you've picked the wrong issue. It it is really like the civil rights movement of the 50s and the 60s. If you are against integration in the schools, you are on the wrong side of history. Now, in hindsight, we can see that. We can look back and see that they were just fucking wrong. Right, so why don't we speed up that process? Exactly. Cut through the being wrong part and just cut right to being right. Yeah, That well, seems like a fun thing to do. And I'm not even talking about what's right and wrong from a morality standpoint, which is clearly the most important issue. I'm talking about winning elections as a political party. And the Republican Party doesn't, they're not into this to lose. They want to control the government. They want to win elections. And they're not going to do it. 
If you're going to be made of stone in the face of overwhelming public support and overwhelming evidence of its correctness and overwhelming empathy and love of Americans, then you are going to end up on the wrong side of history and you're going to lose election after election and your party is going to go the way of the Federalists and the Whigs and the fucking Bull Moose Party and all these other bullshit weird parties that have gone gone to the wayside it's no longer the party of lincoln it's it's a bummer so uh, i don't know what to say other than that and i i really hope someone's listening because i would like to see a party that is smart a party that is sensible you know listen to bobby jindal we've got to stop being the stupid party he he made sense two years ago <laughs> Hillary Clinton is also in the news. Pew 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 pew. Pew, pew. pew Research just published some some information about her favorability over time that I found pretty interesting. So currently, forty nine percent of the public has a favorable opinion of Clinton, while forty seven percent view her unfavorably. So pretty split. So who's that other that other one percent that's not sure? Is it just the margin of error? I never understand. I never understand the 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 not sures or the undecided. I don't get that. It, I, like it's like the you get up to a week before the election and and there's still this undecided. What goddamn by that point you need to have an opinion or get the fuck out of this the the the, the process. You know what I mean? So so what did they find? They found that forty nine percent and forty seven percent and uh, how has it changed? So this is her lowest favorability mark since the spring of 2008 during her run for the Democratic nomination. The decline in Clinton's favorability since August has come about equally among Democrats and Democratic leaners, 86% then and 77% today, and Republicans and Republican leaners from about 27% then to 17% today. Hmm. So it's coming from both sides. It's not just a Republican conservative issue it's also democrats who are changing their minds that's that's interesting and in 1992 her favorability rating was 38 percent yeah which is the lowest that i i can see um it ever being right that's when she was just the first lady of arkansas and a candidate's wife to be first lady so she wasn't really running for anything but you know, a lot of well, a lot was going on even pre, you know, when they did their sixty minutes interview about all the different. I'm not even sure which woman it was, whether it be Kathleen Willey or Paula Jones or whomever. All the different, you know, Bill Clinton has had a sordid sexual past, and that was kind of new news in 1992. So it looks like our highest ratings were in 2010 and 1999 at 66%. And that's, of course, when she was Secretary of State in 2010. And then I'm not sure, um, just being First Lady in yeah. 1999. Sure. So Jennifer Flowers, that's who it was. <laughs> this, the, the 60 Minutes interview. Anyway, that's interesting. And we'll see. And like, you know, with anything in politics... The, the American people have the attention span of a half of a commercial set during, you know, a, a Jeopardy, a commercial on a TV show. So that could change wildly over time. And I, I, am, I am positive that they have the campaign structure in place and the strategy in place that they will be messaging differently to try to get those numbers up. So we will see. So the president of the United States has his own... Twitter account now. He used to, or he still does, I guess, Barack Obama, but now the office of the president has its own account at POTUS. And it didn't take long <laughs> for the Nutter Butters to come out of the woodwork and start leveling threats using the Twitter handle. Right. So we have this article from dailydot.com that will be up on the website and Twitter page. And they just give three examples of some tweets that went out to the president. Um, one person said, you can count on me 
there was a comma there for some reason. Um, <laughs> you can't expect grammatically correct tweets from assholes. <laughs> so you can count on me waiting for you in the parking lot. Right. Is there a parking lot at the White House that this guy could be waiting in? <laughs> I don't think he knows how it works. Um, at XJRH underscore says, kill yourself, you tree swinging inward. Hmm. He knows it's public, right? And even if it's private, that the Secret Service can probably still see it. So his name's Jaden. Again, that's at XJRH underscore. Yeah. Um, this person says, go to Hill, black man. I Go to Hill? I will kill you. <laughs> so these are clearly, you know... Just Thre threatening tweets. Very intellectual. Oh, that's amazing. Too. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I don't, I find it weird when, well, it's obviously there is a, a, a mental capacity issue there when you're going to be calling the president of the United States a nigger and think that you're not going to have backlash on that, not going to have a visit from the Secret Service, not going to have a phone call or have some FBI file started. It's just wildly ignorant. So threatening the president of the United States is a specific crime, carrying a maximum penalty of five years in prison and a $250,000 fine. The Secret Service even has a dedicated team called the Internet Threat Desk. A spokesperson told the Daily Dot that the agency constantly monitors social media for potential threats, but shockingly declined to share any specifics. And apparently there's an illustrious history of Americans ending up in prison for tweeting threats toward the president. It is odd to me because it is, you're not just, listen, you might not like Barack Obama. I don't like Barack Obama. But you're not just threatening a dude. He's not just some guy. He is the president of the United States of America who holds the same office that George Washington did, that Thomas Jefferson did that Abraham Lincoln did. It's the same office. He sits in the same room that Harry Truman sat, that FDR sat, that Ronald Reagan sat. You're not just disrespecting Barry Obama. You're disrespecting the office of the presidency of the United States. And not moreover, you're not just disrespecting, you're leveling threats. And we can't have that in a working society. Well, I think that's probably the best point is just these people aren't very forward thinking. Well, and anyone who right. hates the president because they have a political disagreement. Um, Barack Obama, I don't think is a bad person. I don't either. George W. Bush, I don't believe to be a bad person. I don't either. Um, these are people that you just disagree with politically. They can still be good people. Well, they're just feckless as leaders. And you, when we think back on the the great presidents of the past, many of us don't know what they believed about every single issue. That's exactly I'm right. I'm sure we didn't agree with all of them about everything, and we still look back and admire them and, and think very highly of them, and that's how people in the future will look back on President Obama. So maybe not tweeting him evil things. Right. Well... I was going to say that in a hundred years, Obama might go the way of James Polk or Franklin Pierce or William Henry Harrison, some president that really no one really knows a bunch about. I mean, most people don't know a bunch about, but I was, I didn't say it because he's our first black president. Everyone's going to always know who Barack Obama is. I mean, he's always going to be a guy who's in the forefront, but you're, you're certainly right. He, look, a hundred years from now, he's going to be looked on very fondly because he was Barack Obama, the first black president. And, and he did some, some great things and people are going to really love him for that. So it's the office of the presidency that is important, not necessarily the man, because the office is greater than any human being who has held it. And this might be a good time to talk about the little contest that we had where we tried to name as many presidents as we oh, could just yeah, by yeah, looking yeah. at their picture. I wasn't sure where you were going. Uh, yeah, that was uh, it was fun. That was fun. Do you want to talk about it? 
Yeah. So we had a contest and we had pictures of the presidents. No names, just pictures. Right. Just pictures. And we said, well, how many can we name? Just looking at the pictures. And they were out of order. Out of order. Yeah. And it was pretty hard. Harder than I thought it would be. It, it was harder than I thought it would be, too. And and Brittany Page beat me very badly. No, I did not. <laughs> no, I did not. Um, but we also did this with Supreme Court justices. Yeah, and I missed. I missed. I forgot uh, Alito. And I got, I got uh, eight out of nine. And I got seven out of nine. Yeah, I forgot fucking Alito. God damn Alito. And I forgot Bayer and Alito. Yeah. Listen, I, I listen. I'm a nerd about politics. I'm a nerd about government. So, I this kind of stuff is, you know, I was disappointed in my performance, although still pleased on the presidential thing. And then I'm bummed that I forgot Alito because he's one of the newer, you know, dudes. And just so everyone knows, I really know a lot about Taft. You. You nail Taft. I don't know why you know so much about the fat Taft. I get him whenever he's on Jeopardy, and yeah, then I knew him immediately when I saw when I saw the photos of the presidents. But I I did not. I missed FDR. Did you know that uh, Taft was the Supreme Court Chief Justice? Did you know that as well as President of the United States? Yeah. Of course I did. I think I think Taft was in the Supreme Court after having been president. Yeah, yeah, he was. Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't know. Listen, we're going to wrap it up with something a little different right now. Uh, this is something we don't normally do. Well, 125 episodes, we've never done this. Author, British author and novelist Ian McEwen gave the commencement address at Dickinson University, and he talked largely about free speech. And I'm going to play the his his speech almost in its entirety. I'm cutting out like the first minute and a half because it's, you know, thanks for having me. Great university. You guys are graduating. It's really great. Ha, blah, 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 blah. But I'm going to I'm going to play this the, the from about two minutes on. I think it's important. I think it's beautiful what he said. And I think it really rings true for today. So listen, we're going to cut. We're going to cut off right now. And I'm going to play the speech before we go, though. So I just want to say, if you're not into that kind of thing, if you don't like beautiful speeches that are wonderful and full of rich, beautiful content, then now is almost the time to turn it off. If not, and you want to listen to this, please be my guest. But before we go, as always, I want to admonish you, if you like what we do here and you appreciate us moving the conversation forward... And you enjoy joining with us in this in this thing that we're doing. We appreciate you. If you'd like to support us by other than listening, go to dollamore.com. On the left-hand side, there's an Amazon sp- search bar. If you're going to spend your money at Amazon anyway, why not help your favorite show filled with news, news. and ridiculous comments? So we love you. We appreciate you. Every single one of you taking time out of your busy days to listen to us and help us move the conversation forward. You're all beautiful. Thank you very much. You have a lot of years in the bank, but don't worry, I'm not here to tell you how to spend them. Instead, I want to share a few thoughts with you about free speech. And speech here includes writing and reading, listening and thinking. Free speech is the lifeblood, the essential condition of the liberal education you've just received. And let's begin on a positive note. There is likely more free speech, free thought, free inquiry on earth now than at any previous moment in recorded history, even taking into account the golden age of the so-called pagan philosophers. And plus which, you've come of age in a country where the enshrinement of free speech in the First Amendment is not an empty phrase, as it is in many constitutions around the world, but a living reality. But free speech was, it is, and always will be under attack. From the political right, from the political left, the center, it will come from under your feet, from the extremes of religion as well as from unreligious ideologies. It's never convenient, especially for entrenched power, 
to have a lot of free speech flying around. The words associated with Voltaire, more likely his sentiments but not his actual phrasing, remains crucial and should be never forgotten. I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. It's only rarely appropriate to suppress the speech of those you disagree with. As my late friend Christopher Hitchens used to say, when you meet a flat earther or a creationist, it can be useful to be made to remember just why you think the earth is round or whether you're capable of making the case for natural selection. For that reason, I think it's a poor principle adopted by quite a few civilized countries to imprison the deniers of the Holocaust or the Armenian massacres, however contemptible they might be. It's worth remembering this. Freedom of expression sustains all the other freedoms we enjoy. Without free speech, democracy is a sham. Every freedom we possess or wish to possess of habeas corpus and due process, of universal franchise and of assembly, union representation, sexual equality, sexual preference, the rights of children, of animals, the list goes on. Each of those rights has had to be freely thought and talked into existence. No single individual can generate these rights alone. The process is cumulative. It was a historical context of relative freedom of speech that made possible the work of those who were determined to extend that liberty. John Milton, Tom Paine, Mary Wollstonecraft, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Stuart Mill, Oliver Wendell Holmes, the list, the roll call is long and honorable. And that is why an education in the liberal arts is so vital to the culture that you are about to join and contribute to. Take a long journey from these shores, uh, and I'm sure you will, many of you will, and you will find the condition of free speech in the world to be in a desperate condition. Across almost the entire Middle East, free thought can bring punishment or death from governments or from street mobs or motivated individuals. The same is true in Bangladesh, Pakistan, across great swathes of Africa. In these past years, the public space for free thought in Russia has been shrinking. In China, state monitoring of free expression is on an industrial scale. To censor daily the internet alone, the Chinese government employs as many as 50,000 bureaucrats, a level of thought repression unprecedented in, in human history. So paradoxically, it's all the more important to be vigilant for free expression wherever it actually flourishes. And nowhere has it been more jealously guarded than under the First Amendment of the US Constitution. Which is why I've found it rather puzzling lately when we saw scores of American writers publicly dissociating themselves from a pen gala to honor the murdered journalists of the French satirical ma magazine Charlie Hebdo. American pen exists to defend and promote free speech. What a disappointment that so many authors could not stand with courageous fellow writers and artists at a time of tragedy. The magazine has been scathing about racism. It's also scathing about organized religion and politics, and it might not be to your taste, but that's when you should remember your Voltaire. Charlie Hebdo's offices were firebombed back in 2011, and the journalists kept going. They received constant death threats, and they kept going. In January, nine colleagues were murdered, gunned down in their office. The editorial staff kept going and within days had produced an edition whose cover forgave their attackers. Tout est pardonné. All is forgiven. All this when in the US and in the UK one threatening phone call can be enough to stop a major publishing house in its tracks. The attack on Charlie Hebdo came from religious fanatics whose allegiances became clear when one of the accomplices made her way through France, through Turkey, to ISIS in Syria. And remember, this is a form of fanaticism whose victims across Africa and the Middle East are overwhelmingly Muslims. Muslim gays and feminists, Muslim reformists, bloggers, human rights activists, dissidents, apostates, novelists, and ordinary citizens, including children, murdered or kidnapped from their schools. Now, there's a phenomenon in intellectual life that I call bipolar thinking. 
let's not side with Charlie Hebdo because it might seem as if we're endorsing George Bush's war on terror. This is a suffocating form of intellectual tribalism and a poor way of thinking for yourself. As a German novelist wrote to me in anguish about the Penn affair, it's like the 70s all over again. Let's not support the Russian dissidents because it would get applause from the wrong side. That terrible phrase. But note, more optimistically, at the end of the Ebdo affair, the gala went on, the surviving journalists received a thunderous and prolonged standing ovation from American pen. The scholar Timothy Garton-Ash in a new book uh, on free speech reminds us that the US Supreme Court has described acade academic freedom as a special concern of the First Amendment. Very important, that. So it's been worrying, too, the recent case of Ayan Hirsi Ali, an ex-Muslim, highly critical of Islam, too critical for some. As a victim herself, she's campaigned against female genital mutilation. She's campaigned for the rights of Muslim women. In a recent book, she has argued that for Islam to live more at ease in the modern world, it needs to rethink its attitudes to homosexuality, to the interpretation of the Quran as the literal word of God, to blasphemy, and to punishing severely those who want to leave the religion. Contrary to what some have suggested, such arguments are neither racist nor driven by hatred. But she has received death threats, and crucially, on many American campuses, she is not welcomed. And notoriously, Brandeis University withdrew its offer of an honorary degree and the opportunity to deliver the commencement address. Islam, of course, is worthy of respect, as indeed is atheism. We want respect flowing in all directions, but religion and atheism and all thought systems, all claims to truth, especially the grand claims to truth, must be open to criticism, satire, even sometimes mockery. Surely we have not forgotten the lessons of the Salman Rushdie affair. Campus intolerance of inconvenient speakers is hardly new. Back in the 60s, in my own university, uh, a psychologist was blocked for promoting the idea of a hereditable component to intelligence. In the 70s, the great American biologist E.O. Wilson was drowned out of universities for suggesting a genetic element in human social behavior. As I remember, both men were called fascists. But the ideas of these men did not fit prevailing ideologies, and yet their views are unexceptional today. More broadly, the internet has, of course, provided extraordinary possibilities for free speech. And at the same time, it has taken us onto some difficult terrain. It has led to the slow decline of local newspapers and so removed a skeptical, knowledgeable voice from local politics. Privacy, also an essential element of free expression. The Snowden files have revealed an extraordinary and unnecessary level of email surveillance by government agencies. Another essential element of free expression is access to information. The internet has concentrated huge power over that access in the hands of private companies like Google, Facebook, and Twitter. And we need to be careful, vigilant, that such power is not abused. Large pharmaceutical companies have been known to withhold research information vital to the public interests. And on another scale, the death of a young black man in police custody could be framed as the ultimate sanction against free expression, as indeed is poverty and poor educational resources. All these issues need the input of men and women with a liberal arts education, and you, new graduates, are well-placed to form your own conclusions. And you may reasonably conclude that free speech is not simple. It's never an absolute. We don't give space to proselytizing pedophiles, to racists, and remember, race is not identical to religion, or to those who wish to incite violence against others. Wendell Holmes' hypothetical shouting fire in a crowded theater is still relevant. But it can be a little too easy sometimes to dismiss arguments you don't like as hate speech or to complain that this or that speaker makes you feel disrespected. Being offended is not to be confused with a state of grace. It's the occasional price we all pay for living in an open society. 
Being robust is no bad thing. Being robust is no bad thing. Either engage with arguments, not with banishments, and certainly not with guns, or, as an American Muslim teacher said recently at Friday prayers, ignore the entire matter. In making your mind up on these issues, I hope you'll remember your time at Dickinson and the novels you may have read here. It would prompt you, I hope, in the direction of mental freedom. The novel as a literary form was born out of the Enlightenment, out of curiosity about and respect for the individual. Its traditions impel it towards pluralism, openness, a sympathetic desire to inhabit the minds of others. There is no man, woman, or child on earth whose mind the novel cannot reconstruct. Totalitarian systems are right with regard to their own narrow interests when they lock up novelists. The novel is or can be the ultimate expression of free speech. So I hope you'll use your fine liberal education to preserve for future generations the beautiful and precious but also awkward, sometimes inconvenient and even offensive culture of freedom of expression we have. Take with you these celebrated words of George Washington. If the freedom of speech is taken away, then dumb and silent, we may be led like sheep to the slaughter. We may be certain that Dickinson has not prepared you to be sheep. Good luck, 2015 graduates, in whatever you choose to do in life. And that sums it up better than just about anything, I think. Don't be sheeps to the slaughter. Freedom of speech isn't just important because this is what I choose to do, that I choose to use my mouth and talk, use my voice and get ideas out to move the conversation forward with you, with Brittany here. It's important for all of us. It is moreover important to protect those views that are unseemly sometimes, that are not agreed with, because if they don't have freedom of speech, then you don't have freedom of speech. As always, we love you and appreciate you, the time you take, your dedication to the show. We'll see you next time. For Brittany Page, I'm Jesse Dollimore, and this has been I Doubt It, which usually precedes violent explosive diarrhea. <laughs> <laughs>